Good morning, everyone. Again, wish we could be together, see each other face to face. This is the, the next best thing, the next best thing we can do right now, at least. Grab a Bible, if you would. Open your Bible app and turn to Mark chapter 15, please. Mark chapter 15. Today was going to be a members meeting after our service. Obviously, that's been postponed and we'll bring you those updates in the near future. As a reminder, just from someone who cares about you, please continue to take the situation with the coronavirus very seriously. Stay at home. Use safe social distancing. Trust God. Find your refuge in Him and take it seriously. Thank you for calling each other. Thank you for emailing and texting each other. It's been great to hear about how people are reaching out to each other caring for each other, serving each other in practical ways. Thank you, friends, for doing that. Please continue. We need each other, and we're going to need each other. Well, as we lead up to Easter, this week and next, we're going to look at some of Jesus' words while being crucified. Two weeks on Jesus' words from the cross. Research shows that the average person says about 7,000 words per day. Some more, some less, but on average around 7,000 words per day. That means you say approximately 50,000 words per week and 2.5 million words per year. That's a lot of words. But you take in even more words. It is said the average person takes in between 20 and 30,000 words per day. That means you take in about 175,000 words per week and about 9 million words per year. So you say about 2 million words in a year and you take in about 9 million words per year. That's 11 million words that you traffic in in a single year. Now, how many of those 11 million words could you recall? How many of those 11 million words had a lasting effect on your life? Probably very few. The vast majority were part of normal, everyday conversation and communication that we needed at the time. They mattered at the time. They had no lasting impact, however. And yet, a few words in our lives, a few words, do have lasting effect. A few words can profoundly shape our lives. For me, I was thinking about when I first asked Sung out on a date, or the words I used when I asked her to marry me, and the words she used to accept, thankfully, or the words we used when we vowed to each other when we were married. We, we say and we, we take in millions of words but there are a few words that especially change our lives. And that's what this series is about. A few words of Jesus. A few words from the risen Christ that can and should profoundly change our lives. Now, just to be clear, every single word in the Bible matters. And every single recorded word of Jesus in the Bible matters. But these words, these words from the cross, I trust you'd agree, are 
particularly poignant for us. And so look with me at some of Jesus's words in Mark chapter 15. Let me set the scene first. Jesus has been condemned in a sham trial and sentenced to one of the most brutal forms of execution ever invented, crucifixion. Crucifixion was a public spectacle of shame and suffering. Those to be crucified were scourged, scourged first, as Jesus was, their flesh shredded with a whip embedded with bits of bone and metal. Some, some died from the scourging. If they survived that, the condemned were forced then to carry their crossbeam in public through the streets to the place of their execution. Well, here in Mark 15, Jesus, Jesus has been severely scourged. He can no longer carry his crossbeam, and so we pick it up in verse 21. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. As Alan Cole comments, Simon of Cyrene figuratively pictures what every disciple, every follower of Jesus must do, take up our cross and follow Jesus as he told us to do. But here, Simon literally carries the cross beam for Jesus as they head to his place of execution, verse 22. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, maybe a hill that perhaps resembled a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. It was meant to be an act of mercy. The myrrh mixed with the wine would dull the pain a bit, but Jesus refused. He wanted his faculties clear for what was about to happen. Verse 24, And they crucified him, and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. With those four simple words, and they crucified him, Mark tells us of a profound moment where they would have stretched out Jesus' arms, perhaps with ropes tying his arms to the crossbeam, driven nails through his wrists and through his ankles. And then to further humiliate the condemned, they would strip them naked. And in this case, if there was an article of clothing of some value, the soldiers would keep it. And so here they cast lots to see who would get Jesus's seamless tunic. Other gospel writers remind us that this fulfills Psalm 22. Psalm 22, verse 18, written about a thousand years before Jesus lived, which says, quote, They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Then in verse 25 of our text, And it was the third hour when they crucified him, 9 a.m., and the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. The Romans would often nail a placard above the condemned person's head, showing their offense and to deter others from committing a similar offense. But here, here Pontius Pilate gets in a jab at the religious authorities as he sarcastically has written, The King of the Jews. 
they would come and say, can you please say that he claimed to be the king of the Jews? But those with eyes of faith know how right and true this title is to the king of kings and lord of lords. Verse 27. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him. Other translations say they, they shouted insults or hurled insults at him. It's the Greek word from which we get our English word blasphemy, which may be what Mark wants us to see or realize. They are blaspheming the Savior. Wagging their heads, it says, and saying, Aha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. It's a scene thick with irony as they say, save yourself, come down from the cross if you are who you say you are. Save yourself while he is staying on that cross that he might save all who would believe. All this again reflecting Psalm 22, this time verse 7. Quote, all who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. And then the few words of Jesus we will focus on. Beginning in verse 33. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. The Old Testament prophet Elijah was thought to be a protector, a helper of the innocent. But Elijah does not come to help this innocent sufferer. Instead, verse 37. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, the thick curtain setting off the holy places in the temple, torn in two from top to bottom as a divine act. And then the account has a surprise ending. The Roman soldier, probably overseeing Jesus' execution, provides the identification we should see of this condemned criminal. Verse 39. And when the centurion who stood facing him, Jesus, when he saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. 
This is one of the high points of Mark's gospel. A Roman centurion, a Gentile, a non-Jew provides the proper lens through which to view the identity of this crucified individual. He is the Son of God. So we should ask, why is the Son of God hanging on a cross? Why is the Son of God being crucified? Why? Why? What is going on here? Well, to answer that question, we must understand the words of Jesus, those few words of Jesus in verse 34. When he cries out in Aramaic, his mother tongue, a few words which mean, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me. He's quoting Psalm 22, which we've been referencing. He's quoting verse 1. That psalm that so aptly describes his experience. Now some say he's quoting Psalm 22 because of the confident deliverance at the end of Psalm 22. And on this side of the resurrection, that may be an aspect but clearly, Jesus' suffering is the focus, not his resurrection. Others say Jesus only felt forsaken in this moment. It's a, it's a moment of, of real emotional anguish, and that's why he cries out like this. But that doesn't do justice to this cry either. No, the best explanation for why Jesus cries out, My God! Why have you forsaken me? Is because that's exactly what he was experiencing in that moment. It's called the, the cry of dereliction. Dereliction meaning abandonment. It's a cry of abandonment. That, that somehow, without ever breaking the perfect fellowship within the Godhead, without, without separating the inseparable, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Yet somehow God the Son was abandoned, was in effect forsaken by the Father. Jesus makes this cry from the cross because that's exactly what he was experiencing. He was being forsaken in this moment by the Father. And the text clues us into that reality. Notice again the, the darkness in the middle of the day in verse 33. It says from, from noon to 3 p.m. When the sun is at its brightest, there was, quote, darkness over the whole land. And this is not some eclipse. This is God the Father physically illustrating what is taking place spiritually. It is a supernatural sign of judgment. It probably harkens to the time of the Exodus when God sent a plague of darkness prior to judging the Egyptians and their firstborn son. But now, now it's God's own firstborn son experiencing his judgment. Now it's God's own preeminent 
divine son. Why? The cross of Christ is it's like a kaleidoscope of God's character, God's attributes. Foremost, his holiness. Foremost, we see God's holiness. That means he is utterly different from us. He is far above and beyond us. He is transcendent, being perfect in his character and his essence. He is holy and his perfect character. His perfect character requires that he punish all sin fully and completely. To fail to punish sin would violate his character, would violate his justice. God would fail to be God if he failed to punish sin. Listen, a good God punishes what is evil in the world. You want, you expect a good God to punish what is evil in this world. And that's what a good God is doing here. He is taking sin seriously, taking evil seriously. As he pours out his holy, justified wrath against our sin. His holy anger and the holy fury of his justice against the sins of all who believe. You see, God in his holy love provided a substitute for his people. In that divinely orchestrated darkness, the sin of all who would believe was imputed or thought of as belonging to Jesus Christ. A repulsive tide of every form of rebellion was placed upon him. My, my own arrogance, my impatience, my unbelieving fears from the last week were thought of as belonging to the perfectly righteous one. All of your sin, past, present, and future, if you are in Christ, was thought of as belonging in that moment to Jesus Christ, the sinless one, the perfect holy one, the God-man, became what is utterly repulsive in the eyes of the Father as the wrath of God was then poured out upon him in wave upon wave of holy fury and holy justice. The Son had enjoyed only perfect intimacy, only perfect fellowship, only perfect communion and love with the Father from all eternity past. But now... He looks into the Father's eyes and only sees holy justice against our sin. And this is why Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why, why have you forsaken me? It is because he was being truly forsaken for us. See, the physical suffering, this is important, the physical suffering of the cross was severe to be sure, but should not be our primary focus. The physical sufferings of Jesus Christ should not be our primary occupation here, preoccupation. What was really happening on the cross 
the heart of the gospel, the heart of this good news, is that God the Son was bearing God's holy wrath for the sins that we have committed against God himself. God the Son bearing God's wrath for our sins against God. It's what theologians call propitiation. Propitiation. That just means turning aside anger to bring favor. In his, his classic book, Knowing God, J.I. Packer talks about a, a Trojan war legend in which a Greek naval force was seeking to recover a, a princess who had been carried off. But their, their ships in this naval expedition were being held up by howling winds blowing against them. And so the Greek general, to appease the gods who were opposing them, sacrificed his own daughter. The general does the unthinkable, because he thinks he's appeasing wrath, appeasing anger of the gods to bring favor for their journey. Now that's a pagan, unbiblical picture of propitiation, but that's what the word means. And that's what Jesus is accomplishing on the cross. He is appeasing wrath to bring favor. God the Son enduring God's wrath that God might be propitious, or favorably disposed to us. God the Son being forsaken, that we might never be forsaken. That's what these words from the cross mean. Jesus was genuinely forsaken, that we might be eternally favored. That's the profound life changing significance of these words, these few words. Jesus Christ was genuinely forsaken by God that we who believe might be eternally favored by him. Now, in many directions, we could take the application of that truth. Many ways we could go in applying that reality. We are to live the entirety of our lives for him who died for us, but I want to apply that favor in just two directions. Our sin and our current circumstances. I want to apply eternal favor to our sin, because this is the heart of the gospel, and also make application to our current circumstances. First, though, this favor means the penalty for your sins, all of them, for all who believe, have been paid for in full, once and for all. The text again clues us into this reality as again, the curtain in the temple is torn in two from top to bottom in verse 38. That curtain that set off the holy places in the temple, rent by God, from top to bottom, showing that no sacrifice remains to be made for sin after the one sacrifice of God the Son. No further sacrifices required. And as a result, the way to God is now open. Direct access to God now 
fully and finally available, freely given by his favor, by his grace. In other words, he bore all of your sins for all who believe. Let me ask you, if you are in Christ, how do you think of God's disposition toward you right now? How would you describe his attitude, his, his posture of heart toward you? What, what comes to your mind? Do you live as if you need to appease God in some way yourself? Though you are in Christ, do you find yourself thinking, well, there must be some, some judgment I must pay for that sin, that most recent sin. There must be some penance I need to do. Do you see him as propitious, favorable toward you, full of grace toward you? Or do you think, He's merely tolerating you. He's putting up with you. Isn't it true? Often we think and often we live as if we need to do something to appease God's wrath ourselves. Surely we must make some contribution to remove the penalty for our sins. For what I've done, at least recently, I must do something to regain God's favor. And here's the reality, though. There is nothing. Please hear nothing. There is nothing you can do to remove God's holy opposition against your sin. For God already bore his own judgment in your place. On the cross, God fully propitiated God for all who believe. If you have turned from your sins and trusted Jesus Christ. God is not merely tolerating you. Now he relates to you, and you relate to him on the basis of his freely given favor, his grace. The curtain has been torn. The way to God is open, constantly open, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. You must remember that. As Romans 8 verse 1 puts it, there is therefore now no condemnation, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's not because our sins don't deserve condemnation. That somehow our sins really aren't that serious before God. No, no condemnation remains because condemnation against the believer has already been poured out. For you who believe your sins, past, present, and future, your sins, the ones that you keep reflecting on, the ones that keep weighing on your heart and mind, the one that you committed this week that you regret, it has been paid for in full, Jesus Christ drank the bitter cup of God's wrath, bone dry. It is finished. You must believe that. God wants you to live in light of the joy and the privilege of living every day in light of his favor, his freely given favor, 
His grace. Are you doing so? It's God's invitation to you this morning. Live in light of His favor in His Son for you right now. If you've yet to believe on Jesus Christ, I, I want to I urge you, I want to appeal to you to do so. If you're watching this video right now, I want you to understand that it is, it is vital that you turn to Christ believing. You cannot solve this dilemma of your sin against a holy God. But God in his love sent his son who lived, died, and rose to take away your sins and bring you to God himself if you will but turn to him believing. So I urge you right now, turn to Jesus Christ and trust in what he has done for you. That's thinking about Jesus' forsakenness, bringing us God's favor as it relates to our sin. And that's foremost, for sure. But what about our circumstances? What about these present circumstances? I think this is important because of the COVID-19 crisis that we are walking through. There are a lot of problems of the soul, a lot of challenges of the soul that we face in this crisis. As Pastor Tim Keller puts it, all of our problems come from a failure to apply the gospel. All of our problems come from a failure to apply this good news. As I read about people of all ages, young and old, who were previously very healthy, some of whom now suffering greatly from this virus. I, I am tempted to fear, and sometimes I am indulging in fear. And those problems of my soul, they are coming from a failure to apply the gospel. See, you and I must apply this good news to COVID-19. We must apply, in particular, these few words of Jesus Christ, his forsakenness in your place right now. Look, this virus is truly dangerous and no one should minimize the seriousness of it. If, if you say, I have no concern whatsoever about this situation, you are not taking it seriously enough. We should have a godly concern about this virus and the situation at hand. But as dangerous as COVID-19 is, a far greater danger is this, facing a holy God. A far greater danger is facing a God of infinite holiness in light of our sinfulness. For people who are born into a sinful condition and, and who sin every day, people who every day fall short of the glory of God, people who fall short every day of loving God with our whole heart and soul and mind and strength and loving our neighbor as ourselves, as people like that, were we to encounter the unshielded holiness of God in our sin, that would be a far more serious an eternal danger. Jesus once told his disciples 
to not fear, not fear people who can kill you even, which I, I find a little strange because I do fear people who can kill me. But he said, don't, don't fear those who can only kill the body and never touch the soul. He said, he said fear God who can cast both soul and body into hell. Listen, COVID-19 can only touch your body. It cannot touch your soul. Our greatest danger is God's holiness in light of our sinfulness. But Jesus' words here, why, why have you forsaken me? Jesus' forsakenness means that your greatest danger, your only eternal danger, has been dealt with in full, friends, if you believe. And if your greatest danger has been removed, if your eternal danger has been dealt with once and for all, you can face every other danger. Guarded in your heart from fear. You can face every other danger with your soul safe and secure in Jesus Christ. He was forsaken to bring you God's favor, his freely given favor, his grace. Are you aware of that? Are you struggling with fear right now? It's understandable. It's common. But apply these words. Apply the gospel. Realize that Jesus Christ wants to deliver you from that. And out of that favor... You can be assured of God's love. Out of this wellspring of favor, let's push the, push the application further. You can then be assured of God's love. For instance, the Apostle John tells us in 1 John chapter 4, verse 10, in this is love. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son, listen, to be the propitiation for our sins. John says, this is love. This is true love. Let me define love for you objectively. Love you cannot doubt. God sent his son to be the propitiation, the wrath-bearing sacrifice for our sins to bring you his favor. That love will guard your heart in this trial. That love can calm your fears. As Romans chapter 8 puts it, Nothing, no suffering, no, no tribulation, no trial can ever separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friends, he was forsaken that you might never be forsaken. He was forsaken so that nothing can ever, will ever separate you from his love. On June 7, 1891, in great pain from his numerous illnesses, the Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon, preached his last sermon. Just listen to these words in light of Jesus' words from the cross. Spurgeon said, quote, Jesus, 
is always to be found in the thickest part of the battle. When the wind blows cold, he always takes the bleak side of the hill. The heaviest end of the cross lies ever on his shoulders. If he bids us carry a burden, if he bids us carry a burden, he carries it also. If there is anything gracious, favorable, anything gracious, generous, kind, tender, yea, lavish and superabundant in love, you always find it in him. These 40 years and more have I served him, and I have had nothing but love from him. You can face suffering. You can face serious illness. Even death like that. Knowing divine favor. Being assured of divine love. The one who was forsaken for you is with you in the battle. He's with you on the bleak side of the hill, Spurgeon said. The heaviest side of the cross is always on his shoulders. Because he was forsaken, you know now the, the generous favor, the kind, tender, lavish, superabundant love of God in Christ. And you will, for all your days, find nothing but love in him. So friends, wield this good news. Wield this reality in the fight for faith right now. What are you, what are you using to fight for faith? What's your, what's your weapon? What are you using to fight for faith amid COVID-19? Apply the gospel. Apply these words. Remember that he was forsaken, that you might never be forsaken, but be eternally favored by God. Maybe even pray. Pray with thanksgiving in light of this great salvation. Pray with thanksgiving in the midst of these challenges, thanking him that your greatest danger, your greatest danger has been removed. Pray with thanksgiving that your only eternal danger has been dealt with in full and you will experience the peace of God guarding your heart and guarding your mind in Christ Jesus as you do. You see, out of the millions of words in our lives, these few words of Jesus can have a profound and lasting effect. He was genuinely forsaken that you might be eternally favored by God. Let's pray. Father, help us. Help us to live in light of this good news. Help us to take it in. Holy Spirit, would you open the eyes of our hearts to know and understand what is the amazing grace, mercy, and love that we have in Christ. I pray for those especially who are weighed down with condemnation for their sins, that you would meet them right now, that you'd assure them 
that they can add nothing nor subtract anything from the finished work of Jesus Christ and they would rest secure in the one who was forsaken in their place. And I pray for others who are battling fear and worry and anxiety that you would help them, you'd help us all to remember that in Jesus Christ, our greatest danger, our only eternal danger has been dealt with in full and we are secure in your love. Help us to wield this good news in the fight for faith, we ask you in Jesus' name.